Hi, it's Shana here. Before this episode starts, I'm popping in with a quick reminder about our upcoming CEU on Thursday, May 16th on a person-centered approach to behavior management. School taught us a lot about ABA. However, the thing with ABA is that it's a science and it's constantly evolving. So a lot of what we learned back then doesn't always apply now. Today, we want to use a person-centered approach to behavior management, um, but what does that look like and how can our learners still make progress in this kind of approach? So join us live on Thursday, May 16th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time as Shira discusses how to use a person-centered approach to behavior management with your learners. This CEU is presented by our very own Shira Karpel. You can earn one learning CEU for ACE, QABA, or IBAO. Join us live at this event or to watch the recording asynchronously, go to howtoaba.com forward slash CEU. See you then. Hi, I'm Shira Karpow. And I'm Shana Gaunt, and we're board certified behavior analysts. At How To ABA, we provide practical resources, community, and support to ABA professionals. In each episode of our podcast, we will be having real conversations with real people sharing real stories about ABA. We'll share relevant strategies and actionable tips that will make us all better ABA practitioners. It's the ABA content you need that you're not going to learn in a textbook. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Today on the podcast, we have Chris Collins, who is an RBT and the founder of ABAID Suncoast, which is a super interesting organization, uh, a not-for-profit, I believe, and I'm excited to hear more about it. So, Chris, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Um, So, please tell us a little bit about what you do um, and kind of how it came about. So my background is in early education. You know, I'm a, I'm a certified teacher, pre-K to third, and I'm an RBT. I saw a need for, I saw how many barriers there were to entry to treatment for, you know, children with autism and just the struggle that parents go through and, you know, lack of continuity of care because of some of those barriers. And so I wanted to create something that would allow direct support to those organizations, to those clinics that will kind of erase those barriers or mitigate them as much as possible. Um, For example, you know, helping a family pay for a ADOS or diagnostic evaluation for the the necessary diagnosis to receive therapy um, or to allow co-treatment between multiple disciplines of children's therapy and interventions. Wow. So you're talking mostly about financial barriers, I believe, right? Yeah, financial barriers. But I also um, have identified kind of the diagnosis itself, right? We see a lot of children who do not have an autism diagnosis who absolutely would benefit from ABA therapy. Um, My own daughter, we kind of talked about my son before, but my daughter has Noonan syndrome, which is a pretty rare genetic disorder. But through, you know, it's still from time to time, she exhibits these maladaptive behaviors of, you know, self-injurious behavior, but it was very, very uh, prominent in her kind of early life from birth to five years old. She would engage in a lot of self-injurious behaviors. And my thought is immediately now, knowing what I know now, I think, wow, why wasn't she getting ABA therapy? Why weren't these interventions in place? And, you know, there are a lot of other children I've seen like that, students like that, that absolutely would benefit from it. And they'll never have that 
luxury because they don't have the diagnosis, the magic ASD diagnosis that our wonderful insurance companies <laughs> in their infinite wisdom, <laughs> it's the, the gatekeeper. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily or unluckily, like we say, we don't have to deal with insurance companies. So like, we don't know all those barriers, which I'm sure, you know, there's also a lot of pros about insurance, um, you know, paying for services, but I'm sure it makes it really complicated. So if you were to, you know, in an ideal world, kind of paint this picture of a utopian, you know, ABA services setting, um, what would that look like? You know, money was no object. Oh, it would have SLPs and BCBAs holding hands, <laughs> working with the children together. Uh, teachers would be so welcoming to the BCBAs coming into their classrooms. Um, and just whoever needed it would have it. You know, there's no shortage of children. There's a shortage of providers. Um, and there's a shortage of, well, when I say providers, all ones who meet the criteria set up by insurance and other funding sources. Um, so yeah, I think that is that ideal world is there would be no wait lists at any clinic. (laughs) You were mentioning earlier that in the state of Florida or certain insurance companies, you there's a lot of different rules around, you can't bill SLP on the same day that you bill ABA therapy. And there's a lot of different loopholes like that as well, that just seem odd. So, you know, you were saying in your ideal world, SLPs and BCBAs would be holding hands, but, you know, not just because some people aren't open to the multidisciplinary approach, but insurance is like, ah, nope, can't work together on the same day. Heaven forbid. Yeah, exactly. Wow, that's really challenging. And I know, like, you know, coming from working both in a for-profit and a non-for-profit setting, um, I definitely see the value in ABA calling falling under that non-for-profit umbrella because when you're looking to run a business, you know, you have certain limitations. A lot of them are financial or legal or things like that. But when you're looking to service your clients or, you know, offer, run a non-for-profit, you're really looking out for what's in the best interest of the families that you service. So it really is a very different um, way to approach ABA. And so, you know, approaching it like, well, this child only paid for ABA, so they're only going to get ABA versus this child needs speech and OT along with the ABA, let's find a way to make it happen. Um, So I really do see that need for looking at the whole child um, and not just saying, well, you know, we only offer this service. So sorry. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's part of my vision is that with a a nonprofit, you know, I have no ownership over it. It's not mine. Even if I'm the founder, it is the communities, you know, the community needs this. So it belongs to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what's the the role then of the family in that? You know, are there, you know, if they're receiving this, these grants or the funding, is there an expectation on their participation? Are there like, how does that work? How do you involve the family? Yeah, I think, you know, with anything, you have to have some buy-in from the family. And so there, there are accountabilities in place with that, you know, um, which some of them are already present. It's, kind of, it's one of the beautiful things about ABA is it has a two generational approach to treatment. You know, there's the parent training, parent education piece that is really so important for the, you know, generalization to other contexts. And uh, so part of that, you know, is definitely adhering to that. I know a lot of clinics, a lot of um, practitioners and families, you know, life gets in the way, but a lot of times those sessions go unused, unutilized, you know, they, they're not a, uh, <laughs> There's not a lot of fidelity in the parent training game, I think, uh, just from, you know, anecdotally from what I've seen. 
So it's, you know, that would be a goal obviously for them is you need to not only be attending these, but actually achieving the goals that are being set out for you by the BCBA. Mm -hmm. Wow. But other than that, I don't, you know, I don't expect, and maybe as we grow, that'll, that'll change. But for now, there's not, there's not a, an expectation beyond just adhering to the, you know, the behavior plan. Mm -hmm. So what's the starting point for families then, or is it the organization? So, you know, is it that the family says, oh, wow, I recognize the need that my child needs ABA services, but I don't have insurance? Or is it that the organization says, oh, I, I know that you don't have insurance. Here's a number you can call. Or how do you get that process started? So right now, the way it's set up is, you know, I just partner with the organizations in my community. Um, so really, they're kind of the point of contact. Their families aren't coming to me directly as of yet. Um, that way, you know, a lot of because I am a one man show, an unpaid one man show, and I have a whole nother job. Um, it lets them do some of that legwork as the point of contact. You know, they'll do all the due diligence that's required and uh, I'll, I, you know, reach out to them regularly, like, Hey, you know, how any families that didn't qualify any families on your wait list. <clears throat> and it's also about connecting part of that is, you know, it doesn't have to come from me, you know, maybe another organization is better suited at this time and I can put them in touch with them. Whereas that organization either consciously or <laughs> just out of like, you know, not being aware of the other organization, they won't, won't uh, refer them out to them. But this way, it's like, hey, let me, you know, get them in touch with someone so they can get these services. Because I think some organizations do have that sort of scarcity mindset, you know, like they're afraid to let anything go that walks through their door. But, it, you know, it's not about us. It's about the families. And so I think that's an important part of that. For sure. Absolutely. Um, well, speaking about, you know, us as the practitioner um, and the field as a whole, if there was, you know, one thing that you could change about the field, whether that's, you know, the perception of ABA or how we practice or how clinics are run, maybe it's two things you want to change. <laughs> um, what, like, what, what do you see that needs to be changed? Oh, where do I begin? <laughs> There's so, you know, I think one of the things about the field of ABA and the providers is that it's so fragmented. There's not a whole lot of, I mean, you have so many BCBAs that are just, they are sole proprietor. They operate in and of themselves and that's how they do business. Um, but because of that, there's not, from what I've seen, there's not always a lot of best practices that are being adhered to either. Um, there's not a lot of communicating between organizations about best practices. Um, so I think for me, that would be something I would love to see change in the future. And I think maybe it will. Um, and I guess my, my part two is just the, like I said earlier, there's no shortage of children, but there are a shortage of providers. And, you know, this field has such a high turnover, both because of burnout and just, you know, they're always, people are always looking to the next, the next thing and other companies are always happy to take them. And I think, you know, talking about continuity of care, that's some, that's part of it. It's like your therapy, your behavior tech is changing every month. That's, you know, just in the last year, my own son has had probably 10 different RBTs and, you know, it's frustrating as a parent, especially because I, I've been on that other side. And so I know how not damaging might be too dramatic, but it, uh, 
it's not it's not to the benefit of the children. Ineffective. Definitely yeah. not ideal. And I mean, your son, you mentioned that he's diagnosed with autism and he's getting ABA funding as well or ABA therapy. Um, you mentioned that he's got, you know, lots of different service providers coming in and out, what have you. Can you imagine from his perspective? So it's frustrating for you seeing another RBT walk through your door. But for him, he's like, I just got to know the last one. <laughs> oh, we just paired. Oh, she was really nice. Now yeah, we, st- <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> we still joke about it because one of his old, uh, she was an RBT and then she actually was his BCBA too, but he just defaults to her name now. And so we we're always joking, you know, when he's uh, having the tact people, it's like, Oh, I'm just going to call her, you know, call, call them Courtney because that's, <laughs> they're going to leave soon anyway. You know, no. that's like me and Shana. Sometimes if we had a client, like they would just assume, like they wouldn't even bother discriminating between she and Shana. It was just like, <laughs> you're just here for whatever. Like, I'll just call you whatever. You both have the same role. Shana, Shira, whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, but you have an interesting perspective of a parent and a professional. Um, so I wonder how, how does that play a role in like, you know, how you would like the field of ABA to be perceived? Like, you know, obviously there's a lot going on with, you know, whether it's the only treatment or the best treatment or, you know, things that need to change in the field. Um, but coming at it from your perspective, how do you like, what can you contribute to that conversation? Um, you know, I belong to this uh, parent support group, but specifically for dads on Facebook for, and it's like a national one. Um, so there are a lot of people in there. And before I joined that group, you know, you, we find ourselves in these, especially in the profession, you find yourself in these echo chambers of like, everyone understands the benefits of ABA. Everyone knows everyone can discriminate good ABA from questionable ABA. And so you live in there and you think this is how everyone feels and thinks. Uh, but then when I joined that group, I would say any given thread, it's about a 50-50 split between um, the horror stories that people share about ABA therapy and how they would never do it to, you know, how ABA saved my marriage, ABA saved, you know, my ch- my child is potty trained, my child can functionally communicate for the first time. And they're all true. Yeah, and the, yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the things I started doing kind of leading into the founding of this nonprofit was I was just kind of volunteering with some of these dads that were, they didn't know whether they wanted to get into, you know, enroll their child in a clinic or not. And so I was like, Hey, let me help you give you a list of questions to ask. These are things to look for. These are things that you can, and feel free to reach back out to me once you, you know, talk to them. Um, so I did it with two, two dads that took me up on it and actually followed through and they both are in ABA. So it worked out, that's but incredible. that's, yeah. So that's definitely, I mean, the side of it, I, I'm surprised with how little people know about it, I guess. And then the one, and then how many people know about it, but not the, you know, the seedy underbelly of ABA. Um, yeah. But I think that what you said was, was right. It's not about us being defensive and like proving our point. You were just helpful. And like, you gave them an opportunity to be helpful, make your own decision, but here's how I can help you. Um, and I think that as professionals, that's something that we could all learn to do more of. And it makes sense, makes sense from a parent perspective. I mean, you know, you were an educator um, at the same time you were a parent. You mentioned that your wife is an SLP. So you're both in the field. So you're both like, oh, well, I know what good education is versus bad education. Um, but there's a lot of parents who aren't in your position. You know, there's a lot of parents who are accountants or engineers or doctors or any other trade besides education. And 
they have no idea what ABA is and why should they until their child is diagnosed or until someone says, hey, I recommend ABA therapy. And, you know, sure is right. You know, as a profession, we can't say, yeah, you have to do ABA. You have to, you have to, you have to. It's about giving them information and, you know, letting them make their own decisions based on, you know, questions and informed questions that they can be asking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that one of your missions is like that multidisciplinary um, intervention and, you know, working alongside other professionals. I think that's something that, in my opinion, our field has to do a lot better in. And I think if I would foresee what the future looks like for um, a child either with autism or any kind of other disability who would benefit from therapy, it really should be professionals working alongside each other and multidisciplinary clinics being able to provide all those services, uh, you know, in this ideal picturesque world where we all get along, right? Um <laughs> So how, how does that, how does that work for you? Like, how does that communication happen? How does, is it just something that is a financial thing that as long as it's paid for, is there like cross collaboration? Um, how do you foresee that working? So my kind of like two tiered approach, just from a money perspective is to first find funding for the SLP or the OT or the PT to see the child, because at the end of the day, ABA is very, very expensive. (laughs) Um, they're seen for a lot of hours and, you know, that's, that's got to come from somewhere. So I think if I can first, you know, do that, I want to, you know, collaborate with some uh, practitioners and providers and get some research going forward as well. Um, and then kind of leverage that into the second tier and just, you know, try to secure more funding for ABA, you know, and where it's all of this just funded through philanthropy and they're able to, be uh, have co-treatments and all the all the disciplines that <laughs> that they need uh that to their benefit mm, wouldn't that be nice <laughs> <laughs> yes it does sound ideal um and, you know i've seen firsthand with you know my my son's name is gavin gavin is uh he has been on a grant for the other you know therapies that is otpt and speech so he has always been able to have a co-treatment situation um, so a lot of, a lot of, uh, my ideas actually came from just observing <laughs> everything, you know, everything that is Gavin. Mm-hmm. And then how does that follow him into his real life? Like, how does that then translate from a clinical setting into his, you know, home life, his classroom life, his school? Like, is there any kind of carryover that that would happen? Yeah. So thankfully for him, um, he goes, his, his academic classroom is also part of the nonprofit that he receives his therapy from. Um, he does get ABA from an outside source, but uh, they, you know, they go into the classroom, they do some clinic setting stuff as well. And so, you know, he kind of gets that whole treatment team from educator to uh, all the therapists, behavior tech, teacher's aides, um, and then of course us in the mix. And <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, it's all good. It's all good stuff from what I've seen. And I think in terms of the carryover in the home, you know, just being aware of what they're working on, you know, what they're doing. I, you know, I always think of, I had, I have this a story about the, the kind of collaboration that should happen between a parent and a provider, right? They were doing um, tacting body parts and, you know, they'd be prompting him to touch his belly and name it. And he kept getting it wrong and they were showing, you know, it went maintenance for a while, but that was the same one he kept getting wrong. And I said, well, no, nobody calls it his stomach at home. We call it like his tummy or his belly. 
So for him, he had, he already had two names for it, you know? <laughs> and he's like, you want me to learn a third? <laughs> True. And so they yeah. did it and then boom, a hundred percent independent answers. And you know, he, he mastered it and went on to the next thing. Um, so that, you know, and I'm sure that happens out of sight too, you know, with all of his treatment team, you know, that just having that communication, eventually you, you find the answers you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it sounds like you're a really strong advocate for him also. So that's probably why he's getting as, as much service as he's getting and, you know, having it all work for him, which is really important because it's not going to work the first time. You're not going to like the first provider necessarily, but it's, it's about, you know, having advocating for them and putting together something that works for each child. So. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's something for better or for worse, you know, you, you see it happen where the, the, the loudest voice, the loudest parent is the one who gets everything that they need. And unfortunately for those more, you know, reserved or timid parents, or just maybe they just are not confident to speak to that, that, you know, sometimes they go without the, the services they need for their child. Or English as a second language. It, yeah. Perfect example. Um, so part of our audience is, um, you know, newly minted BCBAs or people who are just getting into the field, professionals who work in the field, but maybe just starting out. Um, what would your advice be for, you know, someone who's just starting out, maybe they're getting their first few clients, either as an RBT or a BCBA. Um, what do you think either as a parent or as a professional that like, you know, if I could tell you one thing, what would it be? Um, I think just patience, you know, I think it's a very fluid profession, even, um, you know, we were talking about best practices and the, the BACB is always meeting and decide, you know, even recently the BCBA testing changed, you know, how they were administering the tests and how they were, uh, giving out the results and everything. And so the same goes for the treatment side too, you know, not everything's going to work. You just have to be patient. Um, and same goes for if, if it's a job you don't like, try to be patient. Now, don't be a doormat, but, mm-hmm. you know, just be patient in that. Advocate for yourself when necessary and try to work things out rather than leave. Because a lot of ABA clinics look great and then you get there and it's the same thing again. And then you just are doing this revolving door around all these that's especially true for RBT. So I guess that's my advice for RBT. Yeah, very much. It looks great in the interview and they've convinced you that everything's going to be great. And then you start and it's just not, but I think it's a balance between the patients and the advocacy, right? It's like knowing when um, to advocate for yourself and how, but also knowing it's not going to be perfect right away. So it's, you know, it's kind of like that balance. Yeah, absolutely. You got to know where your, where your line is, where your threshold is when enough is enough, but you know, being patient until that point while advocating for yourself. And advocating for your clients as well, right? Making sure that they're getting best treatment, even within an organization. Even if you're not happy with the organization, still making sure that their client is being seen as an individual instead of just another number or another kid on a piece of paper. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, it's kind of a for better or for worse situation where you have large ABA companies and they have a lot of resources, but you know, every degree of separation that you are from that child as a, you know, an administrator or C-suite employee, they start to look like numbers. And I think, you know, it's important that first person is the RBT and the BCBA. They're the ones that have to advocate for that person that isn't a number and, and let it, you know, go up from there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of turnover in this field, but there's a lot of people who stick around for a long time, too. And, you know, I think, you know, finding the joy in what you do is also really beneficial. And I could go on and on about burnout and everything else, but that's a whole other topic and that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. (laughs) So, you know, I think the main message here is really make sure that you're, you know, asking the right questions in the interview and advocating for yourself, advocating for your clients and uh, going from there. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Well, Chris, I've loved, you know, everything that you're working on. And I think it's so interesting. And um, I'm excited to see where it goes. So please keep us updated as to like, I will, I will. the progress of your non-for-profit. It sounds like it's been a big, like, passion project for you and um, a big commitment also. So I really hope it's successful. There's definitely a need. And I know a lot of people will benefit from Um, you know, hearing these words of advice and hearing from your perspective and um, just how to do better as a field, which is something that we are very passionate about bringing to the community. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, guys. Thanks so much, Chris. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks for joining today's conversation. Wherever you get your podcast, please go and subscribe, rate and review so others can find out about us too. For more from How to ABA, including free resources and ABA materials, visit our blog at howtoaba.com and make sure that you're following us on social media for more practical tips and updates.